I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is again Pushback Talks. Leilani, how is life over in Canada, Ottawa, Canada? Still a lot of snow? There's so much snow, but not too cold, but so much snow. <laughs> what a strange country. We don't have any snow here. I mean, in the south in of the Sweden. In the south, in the south, yeah. but up north, maybe? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, and it rains a lot. It's gray and dark oh. and misty. It's like you're, you, when you step out, you step into a cloud, and then you kind of hardly step out of it. So, so inside, imagine living inside a cloud. That's my life. But Doesn't anyway, great. I, I have a lot of work to do because, yeah. you know. You've been you busy. I've You've been busy. Been busy. Yeah. What are you? What have you been up to, my friend? I will just told uh, the world that my my new film is will have its world premiere at at the same film festival that Push had its uh, world premiere at CPH Docs in Copenhagen. So the premiere will be the 16th of March, which is like exciting. Very exciting. Breaking uh, social, it's called. Mm. And yesterday, so the trailer is out, so you can look for it if you. Follow my social media. You can have a look at the Breaking Social trailer. And then the film that one day will reach also you. Fantastic. But there is a lot cooking in the world, Leilani. And uh, I mean, Breaking Social and Push are very much about the most powerful in the world, kind of buying regulation, changing the rules of the game. and we we already knew that when we met. Remember, we met a conservative politician in London. Oh yeah. And they love. I said there they love deregulation, and deregulation in some way is let's skip the laws. That's right. And there are consequences for that. Remember, Grenfell we filmed. Seventy-two people died because they. The, I mean, the tenants said, "Come on." We need uh, to do something, otherwise an accident can happen, and it happened. Uh, we saw this, the rail disaster in, in Ohio, Palestine, Ohio now, uh, where it's obviously it's a very profitable train company. They made like 4.8 billion profit, and then, I mean, they're not doing it in, in the right way. So yeah. then suddenly an accident that shouldn't happen happened. That's right. But today we're going to talk about... Something else, Leilani. We have a friend of yours and of mine. Yes. The very tragic occurrence in Turkey and the huge earthquake affecting huge numbers of people, killing huge numbers of people. Yeah. We have a new guest uh, on our podcast. It's Professor Gunil Tol, and she is in Washington, D.C., and you, Leilani, you read an excellent article of her in the, in the Foreign Policy Review. I did. I did. And it really helped me to understand the earthquake. So we're lucky to have Gunul with us. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So first of all, Gunul, an earthquake that big, it must have hit also people you know, your, your friends and families. That's right. Um, I was there during the earthquake. Um, I was a few hours uh, drive from from the epicenter. Um, I was with my sister who lives in Hatay. Hatay is one of the badly hit towns. Uh, So we felt the earthquake very strongly. I was uh, with my sister and her four-year-old. 
uh, it was early in the morning, uh, so uh, my my sister was in a state of shock. She couldn't move, um, and there were cracks on the walls. So I grabbed her and I grabbed my uh, niece. So we we ran out. That was traumatic already, but we received a phone call from her husband, who was in Hatay, saying the city uh, had been leveled to the ground and uh, the family members were trapped under the rubble. So you, you, I didn't know that you were in the middle of this also. And were you involved in trying to rescue people or? That's right. So we, uh, we drove to Hatay um, and uh, my uh, sister's husband, um, he had already dug out his father. Uh, he called out for his mother, but he, he couldn't hear her voice. Um, but the father's legs were stuck under under a large concrete block, uh, and we needed tools to lift. So we waited and waited and waited uh, for forty eight hours until the rescue teams arrived, only to tell us that they could not help us because they had received instructions to focus their rescue efforts elsewhere. So that was a a traumatic experience so he didn't survive he didn't survive and um and thousands of others and uh, his other family members died as well it is it's a it was a very very strong earthquake i mean a lot of houses had been falling also due to poor construction can you tell us what a building Amnesty is? That's right. That's uh, usually government's uh, grant to unsafe buildings. So the buildings that are not supposed to be standing are allowed to stand because politicians want to uh, appeal to house owners ahead of elections. Uh, this was done before Erdogan as well. Uh, it was not invented by President Erdogan. But Erdogan's, uh, this granting amnesties had reached such levels that uh, thousands of homes, they became graves for thousands of people. So granting amnesties was a big part uh, of, of the problem. Can, let me ask a question about that. I find this, this is, I've never heard this before, amnesties, and I find it shocking. So the, the government would know that certain buildings and homes are unsafe. They don't meet the building code. I understand there is a very good building code in Turkey. So the government knows that the buildings don't meet it, and they grant these amnesties to get political support. Is that right? That's exactly right. Wow. I mean, from I'm a human rights lawyer, and we're always talking about the accountability of governments to ensure the human rights of their people. And this is like absolutely the opposite and so blatant. That's right, Leilani. And that's one of the things that frustrated me the most because this was, I understand the sheer magnitude of the earthquake makes it very de deadly, but not that many people had to die. So in many ways, this was an unnatural disaster, a disaster of Erdogan's own making. And there are several layers to this. It's not just uh, granting amnesties to unsafe buildings, but it's also granting government contracts 
to cronies in the construction sector who are known to cut corners on safety. There are so many Erdogan cronies who received these infrastructure projects and they have built unsafe infrastructure and residence in Hatay, for instance, where my sister's family lives. The, uh, the cities, the provinces, uh, only airport was built by a close Erdogan crony on a fault line. And right after the earthquake, the runway was split in the, into two, uh, making it almost impossible to provide aid to the victims. So that is why I think when we talk about earthquakes, we talk about how deadly they are, but they are deadlier in countries where institutions do not work, where there is widespread corruption and people who do not have the expertise are placed in key positions. So all those factors, I think, paved the way for the tragedy that we saw uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Turkey. You also wrote a book, Erdogan's War, A Strong Man's Struggle at Home and in Syria. So you've, you've been looking into a lot of um, the president of Turkey's politics and uh, and also the circles around him. But it seems like the the construction industry is very key to his uh, to his government. That's right. He wrote on this construction boom uh, after he came to power uh, in in two thousand. His party came to power in two thousand two, um, and since almost day one, he started granting these construction contracts to uh, to his cronies, and that's how he built um, his clientelistic network. And those construction companies uh, helped him feed that clientelistic network. So uh, he enriched his, his inner circle and people around him at the expense of the people. Yeah. And it seems like the people, a lot of people in Turkey are well aware about this. I remember something that impressed me a lot. It was the uprisings in the Gessin Park in, in Istanbul, where they wanted to build a shopping mall in the most beautiful park in the middle of, uh, of just close to Taksim Square, like a very central place in, in Istanbul. And a, and a shopping mall in the park, uh, people started to protest. It was in the beginning a few environmental activists, but it grew very quick to be, in the end, after four days, it was four, two million people around Turkey who protested. And then you can understand that this protest is not only about a shopping mall in the park, it's actually about a much bigger system where where uh, the, these construction developers are, are pushing out people or, or, or taking down or doing what they want in different cities around the country. That's right. Gezi Park protests started over concerns about uh, environment. Uh, these people thought that there are very few places, green places left in Istanbul. And here you are, you have a government who wants to destroy that, that green space. So the Gezi protest started out as, um, as an environmental protest, but it very shortly uh, turned into the biggest popular opposition to Erdogan's vision for the country. Because if you talk to people who attended Gezi Park protests, and I was one of them, many people talked about and complained about 
the whole decision-making process, how Erdogan made that decision, that really touched on a lot of people's lives and yet without input uh, from that, those people. So uh, people thought that Erdogan wanted to take the country into a very authoritarian direction and uh, the, the building a, a mall in a, a place that was considered very important by, by locals it was just the latest indication of that of that vision. So they they rejected that vision. So that's that's why I would consider Gezi protests as the biggest popular opposition to what Erdogan wanted to do uh, to the country. Do you think now, after the in the when, in the aftermath of the of the earthquake, that this critique towards the same sectors, the same cronies of Erdogan will come up again. I mean, I think this protest in the stadium was some kind of sign of of this um, anger out there. There's a lot of anger. I was on the ground. I've seen that anger firsthand. A lot of frustration over Erdogan's slow and uncoordinated response. And I think the opposition parties used a perfect narrative, basically putting the blame on Erdogan, saying that it was those things that Erdogan has done and has not done in the 20 years that he's been in power that paved the way for this tragedy. So uh, there is a lot of anger, but of course, if you're living in a personalist autocracy, such as Turkey, um, the process of uh, mobilizing uh, uh, protests or channeling this anger into uh, an electoral support for the opposition is not straightforward. In democracies, governments are brought down after such a huge disaster. Uh, just yesterday, I think there was a train crash in Greece and the person, uh, the minister who is in charge of in infrastructure resigned immediately. And I think uh, less than a hundred people died there. In Turkey, according to official figures, 45,000 people died. But I think uh, there, there will be more than 100,000 deaths. And yet we have not seen one sing single resignation because Turkey has become a personalist autocracy. And in personalist autocracies, there is very little room for accountability and space for a popular protest is very limited because it's people's lives on the line here. Uh, and whether this anger is going to be channeled into... Um, Support for the opposition at the upcoming elections is also not straightforward uh, because Erdogan controls 90% of Turkish media, which means he can shift the narrative. And he, he's already trying very hard. Right after the earthquake hit, Turkey's institutions did not work. There was no one there. Rescue agencies were not there. Turkish troops were not dispatched. But there was one thing that was working, and that was... Uh, the presidency's communications directorate, which acted really fast in sharing a large file, a 147-page document with people working for bureaucratic agencies and also people who are working for Turkish embassies across the world, saying that we have to control the narrative. We have to say that all government agencies were there right after the earthquake hit. So in a country like that, a lot of people are hearing this government narrative. 
So it's very difficult for the opposition to convince the people that it was the government uh, and Erdogan's centralization of power that led to this disaster. I saw that there was a, an app coming out now in, in Turkey where people could register people who had, were spreading disinformation. So ba basically an app where you can sell out your friends and neighbors. It's, it's kind of scary to be critical in, in Turkey. It's definitely, I mean, imagine you're in the midst of this disaster, people are still under the rubble and many of them are still alive. And instead of sending the much needed aid, your institutions, uh, your law enforcement, who could have been there helping people, taking part in rescue efforts, but they were busy arresting people who were basically criticizing slow government response. And another thing that, that Erdogan's government did, which is unforgivable, they sh shut down Twitter in the early hours. And Twitter, uh, right after the earthquake, became a very important platform where people and survivors shared information about their whereabouts. So Twitter became a platform that was key to search and rescue efforts. And yet Erdogan shut it down because there was too much criticism of government's slow response. Mm. There's a lot to say. What is, of course, deeply troubling is what you mentioned uh, around accountability, because if you're in that situation of a, whatever you want to call it, an autocracy, then, and as I understand it, Erdogan has uh, even manipulated ministries so you don't have ministries so much as institutions now so losing government that way sort of makes it very difficult to hold anyone accountable and and at the end of the day what do we have if we can't hold anyone accountable but i will say also it does happen in democracies too i had the occasion to go to new orleans after the katrina flooding and the same thing was happening there. And that was pre-Twitter and these sorts of social media days, really. But the same thing where the government's emphasis wasn't on saving people, actually. It was on arresting people and creating a narrative. Um, and what's worrying about that, because we, we can look now behind and say, what happened after Katrina? And we know this after many disasters. That narrative lays the foundation for what happens as we go forward, the reconstruction. If we're never going to hold anyone accountable in Turkey for corruption, for allowing these faulty buildings to be built, then it means as we move forward to address the disaster, we don't have the right foundation in place. We haven't held the right people accountable. We haven't asserted the right values. It's very, very distressing. That's right, Leilani. Look, politicians are politicians everywhere. If you are a politician in a democracy or in a dictatorship, in an autocracy, all they care is to hold on to power. That's a given. That's not surprising. But the difference is that after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the Republican Party lost ground uh, in the midterm elections. Um, so there is a certain level of accountability. And in Turkey, imagine 45,000 people are dead and there is not one single resignation. None. That's not acceptable. 
incredible, actually. It, it tells a story for sure. It tells yeah. a story. Mm. Mm. And, you know, one of the most heartbreaking and infuriating thing for me to see after the earthquake was Erdogan's first public address. When he addressed the nation, imagine you are the leader of a nation who is mourning. It's in the middle of a disaster at such a big scale that everyone is crying and yet your leader appears uh, on TV and he's angry. He's angry at the earthquake. He's angry that the earthquake happened because it's really going to dim his electoral prospects. He's angry at the victims. He's angry at the victims' families who are complaining about the slow government response. So th that lack of empathy really hit me. And I had seen that before in the United States, right after COVID hit. And that was when President Trump showed no empathy at all. And that cost him votes, that cost him support. So my only consolation is that it's going to happen to Erdogan, where people will realize uh, that lack of compassion and how his own actions led to this, this disaster and he'll pay a political price. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, I I know that in the, the bigger cities in in Turkey, people have been voting on not on Erdogan's candidate. So he's not in control in the cities. But what I understand that this big area where the earthquake happened is the area where he had most support in, in the elections. That's right. The 10 uh, provinces that were hit, seven of them are run by Erdogan's ruling AKP. So this is a big constituency. But of course, going back to the point that it's not going to be straightforward uh, for several reasons. And I think the number one reason is holding elections is going to be logistically very different. Millions of people are homeless right now. Tens of thousands have lost their lives. And those cities many of them are, are leveled to the ground and we are only a few months out from the election. So how are you going to hold elections? Mm. It's going to be a logistical nightmare. Yeah. It's back to, we need strong democracies. We need uh, administrations that are responsible. And there is this beautiful story of this one village in, in, in Turkey where there was no victims because the, the mayor was uh, trying to follow the rules. Yeah. So it's politics makes a difference. Democracy makes a difference. That's exactly right. Strong men come to power promising to get things done. And Erdogan came to power right after that earthquake in 1999, saying that he would provide stability, that he would respond to the country's crises immediately, and that he would get things done. And 20 years after that, we see that, that he's not keeping that promise because he undermined the very institutions that are key to get things done. Uh, so I think Turkey's earthquake teaches us an important lesson, and that is countries in general, and Turkey in particular, do not need a strong man. We need strong, capable institutions. That's a very good ending of, of, the, of this interview. 
Professor Gunil Toll, uh, amazing to have you on our podcast mm -hmm. straight from Washington, D.C., where you are the, the founding director of the Middle, Institute's, Middle East Institute's Turkey programs. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me and, and thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. No, thank you very much. After their conversation with Professor Toll, Frederick and Leilani met with Chihan Baisal, a member of Istanbul Urban Defense and an independent researcher to talk more about the political and economic environment that allowed the construction of so many unsafe buildings, despite billions in tax dollars being designated for earthquake-safe construction. I was in Istanbul uh, in Turkey with, with PUSH, and I met a lot of very interesting people. And uh, I mean, also Istanbul has been hit by the earthquakes earlier on, so you could see a lot of buildings uh, it was like almost like a parallel housing market where refugees were living in the in the harmed houses. Ah. So it was like a lot of Syrians, refugees, and so on. So I, I got an insight. But the the panel when I showed Push in Istanbul was led by a longtime housing advocate in Istanbul, Jihan Baisal. And by chance, Jihan is with us. Welcome to. Pushback Talks, Jan. Hi, Frederick. Hi, Leilani. Hi. I'm very happy to be in the program. Yes. Uh, 45,000 dead in a horrible, extremely huge earthquake. And you said before that the numbers might end even much higher. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. And I guess when... It's such a big earthquake. There's also a lot of friends and families lost. Almost every Turkish family would have lost some they know. Yes. Even from the cities away from the region, there are friends, there are uh, scholars we have lost, unfortunately. And even, I mean, uh, even if uh, we don't know anybody there, still the pain is inside us. Mm. Yeah. When I saw the images coming out, it struck me something that I saw when I was as a reporter many years ago in Mexico after the big earthquake in Mexico in the 85. I was there after, and I, I made a lot of stories about the, the of the earthquake, and it was clear that an old house could be stable there and then a new build could be falling down and i interviewed a lot of engineers and and i understood that that the iron in the house that you if you bribe the right person you could build a house with weaker uh, protection or weaker steels you could save a lot of money by by skipping the rules yeah and what i saw that when i saw some of the images I, it, it looked the same i'm not an earthquake specialist and I'm not a building specialist but my it reminded me of something I've seen before yes you're completely right about the Turkish case it is very very similar yeah yeah and then starting to read about this the story unfolding now is enormous tell us some more about this Jihan what is the pattern you see out there well, the pattern, of course, starts with the with Turkey uh, going into the neoliberal era and neoliberalism and the regulation. Uh, that's where I started, I guess, uh, back in the eighties. And during 
Then we started seeing construction amnesties, one after the other, and eight of which were enacted in the uh, AKP uh, era, the government party, uh, current governing party now. But, I mean, uh, looking back and uh, just uh, reflecting on these construction amnesties, which were usually for popular reasons, for gaining votes from the populations. And then uh, coming to the earthquake and uh, analyzing what has happened, what struck us, most of us, was that what we uh, warned back in 2018, when the a new construction amnesty regulation was enacted by the AKP then just before the general and presidential elections that under the name of peace reconstruction, that was quite, quite different. So Leilani, you've, you've seen this, you've, you've been following Turkey over many years. I mean, you've been following a lot of countries over many years, but... But you see here a country with a growing economy, a lot of people moving into these factories, building spontaneously, and then the government says, okay, you can stay on, it's now your land. So this is like, this is kind of normal, but it comes with some risks, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is a way in which it's considered progressive and good policy for a government to see informal settlements springing up. People create informal settlements because they need a place to live close to where they're working. That's always how it happens. And when a government says, okay, you stay, you can regularize your land and remain, that's generally, from a human rights point of view, considered a good thing. Mm. Um, but of course, there are these risks. And this idea of using housing for economic growth and economic stabilization, that is a global pattern with very bad repercussions because it at first it might seem okay. Oh, I'm one person, a family, let's say, and I'm renting a room or an extra room and it gives me a little extra income. It's almost the Airbnb model, yeah? <laughs> and, and we're like, okay, that's okay. But you see how it's how it then evolves as... Uh, policy that becomes the commodification of housing and ultimately financialization of housing and ultimately corruption in housing. And that's the real worry in Turkey, right? Which is, I think, what we're confronted with now with the earthquake, right? That it ballooned into something quite nefarious, quite negative, obviously. Because when I, when, I mean, now it's 25,000 buildings that's, that's gone down. It's including historical heritage cities so it's not only new built of course it's a very heavy earthquake so of course yeah. it's it's it has its own powers of course but i mean in many countries you're you're, you're trying to build houses too so the houses could survive an, an earthquake but here we could see houses built in 2013, 2014, big apartment blocks just go and being sandwiched down uh, in, an, in a horrible way. And that's, that's obviously something that shouldn't happen. Exactly. And I mean, I think Jeanne was saying that on paper, there were these laws. And I think there became more and more laws around how a building should be constructed and what's required. And there were even taxes that you had to pay 
Three billion dollars yeah. in taxes were raised toward creating buildings that are earthquake safe, supposedly. I don't know, Jeanne, if you can comment on that, but... Yes, uh, there were the earthquake taxes. And when we actually asked what happened to these taxes about five, six years ago, I can't remember it now, the minister of the time, uh, uh, he was, the he was I don't know what ministry, not housing ministry, but uh, Mamit Shimshek, I think economic uh, affairs. And he said very proudly that they used it for building auto roads. Can you just imagine it? Just that taxes were used for building you, auto roads. Highways. Yes. Yeah. For building highways for the money. Yeah. So the earthquake tax went to buy highways. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like um, they put them on a on the wrong place. <laughs> um, but these amnesties that you were talking about, yeah. they extended well into yeah. the recent era where as i understand it where people were being allowed to just build even though they were in this zone that is known to be an earthquake zone they were allowed to just build what they wanted without these regulations it sounded yes. to me like a kind of crone what we call in english cronyism or a kind of like it's deep corruption in real estate, right? Where politicians say, oh, yes, okay, just we'll turn a blind eye. You just build. It's no problem. And there's some kind of favors being passed between people. But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this from the outside. I was reading that the constructors, uh, they need a building inspection. Somebody had to inspect. Yes. Them. But yeah. then... The inspections were somebody made just by a photo sent to someone. And it's also the, the privatized market where the state yeah. has like backed down. So the, the building companies also own their own inspection companies. Yes. Yeah. This sounds and totally hilarious. Yes. Or criminal. It, yeah. Actually, building supervision and inspection uh, bylaw was uh, enacted after 1999 earthquake. And it was good. That's I was just talking, referring to it. And uh, but uh, then the, what AKP did was during the uh, its uh, era, it got the public buildings out of the supervision. So public buildings such as hospitals such as municipalities, which we have seen uh, during this earthquake demolished in rubbles, have been taken out of the context of this building in supervision and inspection. So they don't and even what inspect more... their own buildings, you mean? <laughs> no, it was just taken out. They do. I mean, they inspect their own buildings, but it, it was taken out this out of this uh, inspection supervision law, where you said uh, it was uh, actually privatized because private firms did started inspecting it up to two thousand nineteen. Uh, before, in the original bylaw, it was the municipalities and the chambers that did the inspection. Then AQP changed it, privatizing it and turning it to the hands of uh, private firms, which were actually firms of the developers turned out to be good. So it's the system worked like this. I mean, you build it and you also inspect it yourself. You know, this this is the uh, 
evil of the system. So it is the developer's own firm that does the inspection. But then I think seeing the danger in this, in 2019, the system was changed and there was a pool system. So selection was random. But still, there was no supervision in inspection. I mean, we have heard about, for example, uh, certificates and diplomas rented by the firms. Young engineers do not, who need money rent their diplomas to the firms. They do not go to the inspection. Somebody else does it with their, or doesn't do it at all. So that's the that's the, that's the extreme of deregulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where the, exactly. The, where the society totally steps down and say, "Okay, you solve it because we can do it better." Kind of. Yes, and they they have to take samples from the buildings to do the inspection. This was not done. Uh, also, they have to uh, inspect the iron systems, the uh, cement, etc. This was not done at all. So I mean this. The inspection system was a fail. But then came the amnesties, one after the other, nine amnesties. And the interesting thing is that in 2004, AKP uh, prohibited informal housing building. And it uh, in a criminal code, it was put in a criminal code and it was prohibited. So... Starting from 2004, we do not see Gejakondu building anymore, as before. But what we see is in the uh, centers of the cities, uh, in the districts, central districts of the cities, all kinds of buildings without permission. And because why? Because people know that there will be another amnesty since the elections are coming there will be another amnesty. So why not build and get the money? I mean, that was a, a, a win-win system. Who is who is calling for these amnesties? Is this the building sector say, hey, president, we need a new, we need a new amnesty. <laughs> and how do you formulate that? Well, uh, because, I mean, first of all, these amnesties are used for patching the holes of the budget. Because in 2018, I was just talking, going to talk about it. Now I, I can come to it. I mean, when it was enacted in 2018 as uh, housing rights advocates, because in this peace reconstruction amnesty, you have to pay a fee. That was the first time. You have to pay a fee. And in turn of uh, listing unlicensed parts of your building, or if your building is unlicensed at all, you just list the uh, failures and then uh, the authority makes uh, some budget and you just uh, pay 3% of it and then you're free. But because there was no building supervision and inspection done before, so that comes the dangerous part, Nobody knew, I mean, what will happen when the earthquake hits these buildings. And it hits the area that is hit is like it's it's bigger than Denmark. It's a very, very big area. Yes. And what is... will happen to Istanbul? I mean, yeah. looking if back. If it happens then, in Istanbul, yeah. Yeah. You, you were out happen? of it this time. Leilani, when you hear all of this, what, what is, have you heard about this before? 
this kind of structures of amnesties and I actually have have not um certainly the corruption the pressure on government and the symbiotic relationship between government and developers and construction industry we hear about this all the time these mm -hmm. amnesties not so much what's going through my mind of course as a human rights lawyer Uh, focused on the right to housing is just the abdication of responsibility and accountability of the government. The government is supposed to protect its people, supposed to protect the right to housing. And this is just flagrantly in violation of that, obviously. I mean, if you have buildings going up on fault lines or near fault lines that aren't being properly inspected, I'm I'm recalling Frederick when we were in Chile mm. and uh filming for Push and I was there on a UN mission and there was a, a sizable earthquake when I was there. I mean for me it was sizable 6.4 or something like this. But I recall you know talking to people about that and and at my hotel they were just reassuring saying this is so safe, this building, our buildings are so safe. There's such strong and strict regulation. And of course, Chile is one of the most neoliberal societies in the world, was uh, changing now. Um, but so it, it just, you know, it's very interesting to reflect on that experience. I was, the very first mission I did as a young human rights lawyer was, believe it or not, to Kobe, Japan, just after the earthquake. And so I, I, I have some familiarity with what governments should and shouldn't do in these circumstances. And it just seems to me that it's obvious, an obvious abdication of responsibility and accountability to the human right to housing when you mm. allow this kind of uh, neoliberal policy to spread deregulation, deregulation, and then allow the corruption. One thing that comes to my mind is, or also as a question is that it seems like the construction industry, the developers ha have very strong political relations. They have a good grip of the political system. One of the big stories from, from Turkey over the last year is the, the, the Gezi Park uprisings in, in 2013, where they wanted to build a shopping mall in a beautiful park in the middle of Istanbul. And over like four days, it's, It sparked from a young group of uh, environmental activists to like two million people in the street and all over Turkey. So obviously, people in Turkey know that the that the developers are they have their own rules, or they can bend the rules. They can they can make the government do what they want, even building in a historical park in the most beautiful city in the world. So it it seems like this pattern is like reflected again the same forces that wanted to buy the shopping mall in, in this park are now out there um, with a lot of buildings that have just been falling on top of people. What do you say, Gian? Is that, is that the story? Yeah, that's the story, but not all the developers. Pro-Ekipi developers, or may, maybe we should say Erdogan's close circle. We know who they are. I mean, and uh, going back to, to 1999 earthquake, for example, when I uh, talked about the uh, bylaws enacted, then one was the, the menus for emergency tent areas in Istanbul, for example. Uh, 
And at the time, there were 480 venues reserved for emergency tent areas uh, in case an earthquake happens in Istanbul. And you know what the number is now? <laughs> no, tell us. Well, in 2016, as uh, Urban Moments, we just uh, researched this. In 2016, it was 77. And now it's probably much, much less. Wow. And what happened to these, all these public spaces? They were given to AKP's developers for uh, constructing malls, for constructing residences, plazas, whatever comes to your mind. Yeah. So, and it's that's it. The sad thing in Istanbul, because it's, I mean, if you haven't been there, it's a very beautiful city. Um, but you can also see that, I mean, the old fish market uh, is now changed into um, a cruiser harbor with like a very ugly commercial investment. You can see that it, that stuff is coming in on top of what people would like to see in their city. And and it's like this kind of system of, of favors and, and and corruption that is kind of changing the city in some way that's it's a bit scary mm. uh, and it, it's again it's a global pattern isn't it Leilani mm. yeah one of the things I read um, I, I read an interview with a academic actually I believe she's in Stockholm in the New Yorker Jenny White and she's been studying Turkey and that's her area you probably know her yeah and she was saying that I can't remember when it was but at some point and Jan you can tell us there was a change in the actual governmental structures in Turkey where you went from a parliamentary democracy to a president democracy. And it's more than just the centralization of power. She's saying that if you were to look at a kind of map of the way governance looks in Turkey, you would see Erdogan in the center. And everyone around him and that he had just used his long-standing power to consolidate power and create circles of, of um, people responsible to him all around him. And I found that very interesting because it, it suggests that what happened with the earthquake is much deeper than just, than even just corruption and neoliberalism and deregulation, right? This is also about restructuring democracy and what happens when we restructure democracy away from actually real democracy and towards something else, right? A more because autocratic... The president also needs to deliver something back to his close supporters. Of exactly. Course. And then what he can deliver back is then, okay, we can give you another amnesty so we won't check if you built the house correctly. That's right. Kind That's of. right. Or That's you right. will get the right to build your shopping mall here and to build your cruising harbor here and, you know, whatever yeah. they it's it's happening. I mean, this is something we see in many countries, this kind of uh, the corrupted relation between the developers and politics. It's, it's not something, nothing unique for Turkey. No. Uh, it's it's happening everywhere. The, so because the, the, the cities have the planning right and they, that's a, there, it's a, it's a traded goods it's a good that can be traded and that's why we need a strong political system to defend because it, in the end it's this land belongs to the people not to 
not to the president's little own group of, of friends. It, can I just uh, um, bring in one thing we haven't talked about, which is, okay, so all of this leads to a complete disaster when an earthquake hits and so many deaths. But part of the deaths, as I understand it, is also related to a failure in rescue and recovery immediately after the earthquake hit. Mm -hmm. And I know there are a lot of reasons for that, including a failure by the international community, the UN in particular, the US took a long time to get into Syria, for example, to allow um, the sanctions to be dropped, etc. But the death toll can also be related to, again, this corruption, this system that's been put, governance system that's been put in place in Turkey. So I don't know if you can comment on that. I've I read yes. terrible stories of individuals yeah. having to do rescue and recovery of yeah. their own families. Yes, exactly. I mean, now going back to Genuite again, it is the system because uh, Turkey has never had a real democracy more or less a parliamentary system, but the democracy worked more or less. But now this this is not the presidential system. Actually, this is a one-man rule. The autocrat decides everything. When one person decides everything, what happens is that every other institution, every other one who is responsible for whatever, becomes uh, slow becomes awkward, cannot move a finger. So that is what happened with the disaster and emergency uh, management presidents, the AFAD. AFAD just could not intervene on time because there are uh, allegations that they waited for Erdogan to uh, accept them to go to the uh, area. And also the military I mean, Turkish military is well organized. It did a quite a well job in uh, 1999 earthquake. So the military was sent after uh, four days or something like that. So the military was also too late. And another thing is that, of course, when there is the one man who decides on who to be the minister, who to be the uh, president of the such institution, such organization, etc., then there is no merit system. There is unqualified persons. I mean, uh, persons who have actually no knowledge, no education about the job they are doing, hold the places, such as the disaster and emergency management president, Afar. Uh, he is from religious affairs department, yeah. something like that. Yeah, he was a right. theologian, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is what is it doing there? That's a very good question for the Turkish people to ask. So um, you were supposed to have elections now in, in, in May in Turkey. And and we, we know that already in the big cities, all the big cities, the opposition is, is in government. So he's under pressure, uh, the president, to, to stay in power. Will this earthquake be good for him or bad for him in, in, in the case of winning the elections? Uh, for Turkey, you cannot say beforehand what will happen next. But Erdogan is, uh, if the elections are done justly, 
Erdoğan will, will be saying goodbye to Erdoğan, hopefully. And uh, talking about the elections, there is one point I would like to make. Just if this earthquake hadn't happened, there was another construction amnesty coming out. And now for those uh, unlicensed buildings built before 2018. Mm. I, I mean, before built, I mean, the former one was those uh, built before 2018. Now this one, I think, would uh, be goes between 2018 and 2023. Uh, so that will uh, not happen. That, that... Yeah, but that was waiting in the wow. parliament. It's a very strange system. There is a little sweet story I found. Uh, it came from Süddeutsche Zeitung, the, the Munich newspaper. And it's about the city of Erzin. It's a small city, 80 kilometers from the epicenter. So it's very close to the... And there is a mayor called Erkas Elmasuglu. Yeah. And he, in that city... There is no casualties. There is no dead people because he refused to sign off houses that were not safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, yeah. that, is this something that you talk about? I, I find it, it's like there is, there is a lot of light in that story. There is a lot of hope in that story. It means if there is one politician, there is one functioning Democrat, you can actually save people's lives. Yeah, yeah. That was again the same. We had the same story in the nineteen ninety nine earthquake as well. Uh, uh, district Tavshanlı, I guess, of Kocaeli was similar. Yeah. If you have an honest uh, mayor, if you have an honest bureaucrat, then uh, you have hope. So yeah. what we need on the planet are honest politicians and honest city governments. Uh, that are there to protect people, not to make money out of signing off things. Because it's what I when I listen to you, I understand that this is this is criminal, and it's also yeah. If we talk, is. we're talking about forty-five thousand dead officially. You said it might be up to two hundred thousand one day. Yeah. We don't know. Um, it's. Uh, it's huge, Leilani. Yeah. Yes. I mean, honesty indeed. But uh, from my perspective, it's like, okay, you don't want to be honest. Just abide by universally agreed upon human rights. And we know that if you don't build a building that can withstand an earthquake, then you are going to see violations of people's human rights. That's that. So... I mean, I don't want to rest it on honesty because I don't want to rest <laughs> my no, hope. I, I mean, don't put uh, my hope in honesty, not with no, not I mean, in politics. <laughs> in building a house, you can make a lot of mistakes, and it's very sure. human to make mistakes. Um, and uh, a very heavy earthquake can also take down uh, a the best well-built built building, yeah. I, I guess. But still. If you if you're a government or if you're a city government in a country where where the earthquakes are happening, um, and then you let people 
build houses where the materials are too weak or because you save a lot of money. Steel is very expensive. Mm -hmm. Steel and cement is expensive. So mm -hmm. you save a lot of money by making them thinner and, you know, mm -hmm. but then you, you will have a, a sandwiched building. You know what it means? It yes. means that it's like they just pack together and yeah. I, and I've seen it. I've seen it in Mexico. And then you see the house besides standing there proud, you know, shaken, but still there. Yeah. Also, I mean, when you think about this from the point of view of the planet, mm. it is so bad for the planet, for the earth, right? Construction itself is bad. It represents, you know, 40% of emissions. To then see all these buildings as rubble, and then to have to rebuild again, bad for the planet. I mean, it's, yeah. And uh, now we face another uh, very, very uh, important problem. As uh, we will see new cities of Erdogan rising from this area. And this is uh, disaster capitalism, actually. The pro-AQP constructors and developers will be profiting. And people will have no participatory, uh, I mean, never people never participate in the urban transformation projects. And they will just exempt people from these projects as well. They will build as they would like to, uh, violating the cultural uh, and uh, daily life, uh, all kinds of practices. Just, I wonder if you have seen the Mass Housing Administration, that is the Tokyo buildings, we call them human silos. Mm. And they will erect them. And uh, these are uh, just uh, housing sites under supervision, controlled, disciplined. And uh, it's it's very, very now uh, good for Erdogan. Yeah, President <laughs> that's, Erdogan what, that's the kind of uh, city he, he, he would like. He that he yeah. will rebuild. And, uh, in one year, he will rebuild yes, everything. Yes, he said in one year, everything. And today there was a state of emergency decree uh, announced by Erdogan. As you know, state of emergency was declared uh, for these 10 cities. And actually, there was no need for a state of emergency because the law was enough uh, to intervene uh, for the emergency situation, but state of emergency was declared by Erdogan. And now we have today, there was a decree. And he said that meadows and agricultural fields in the region would be open for new city constructions. Oh, yes. Now that's another mess, really. I that's mean, in the because this is the climate crisis exactly. and we need food. And this area provides about 15% of agricultural output of Turkey. So, I mean, this will be ecocide, but no matter what, his constructors will be the winning party. So the, the people who are partly responsible for so many houses falling down on top of people will now make money out of yeah. giving the yeah. survivors some poor housing. 
and the, on top of agricultural land. Yeah. This is, um, Leilani, I think we have to follow up on Turkey later on because this is, um, this is something we should keep talking about. Uh, Jihan Baisal, thank you very much for being part of uh, Pushback Talks and I hope we can meet in Istanbul again. And I hope I, so. And, and if, if I can come and, and show my new film, it will be amazing. We'll see what happens. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. So, Leilani, this was a very emotional uh, podcast. We Sometimes you're not really prepared for that. I know. But thank you for, for making this podcast together with me, Leilani. It's, uh, I, I constantly learn new things. It's, me it's, too. Uh, it's, it's a good it's, way to keep on top of how the world is changing and what's happening. Yeah. It's forcing yeah. us to keep our ear to the ground. Yeah. So, and this podcast, we we don't really fund. We 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 ask people to support us on, on Patreon. So you go to you go to patreon.com and then, and you, then look you look for, for pushback, pushback talk. talks. Yeah, and then you can support us and do that, please. Now, as I'm launching a new film, yes, uh, we are soon opening up a Kickstarter campaign. So Exciting. there will be more more ways of supporting independent film and independent stories. So so look out for it. it the film is called Breaking Social. And so you can yes. also find the, the webpage breakingsocialfilm.com, breakingsocialfilm.com, and have a look at the trailer. Great trailer. And next episode, you, Leilani, you will, you will get the preview, the film, and then you will... Ask me questions about I'm the gonna film. I'm going to turn the tables and interview you. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit what scary. What a nightmare. <laughs> nah. You're nice. You're, you're friendly. I'm nice. So good. You're a good talker. It's... It should be fine. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much, Leilani, and see you soon. Thanks, Frederick. See ya. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and at push underscore the film. Or check out our websites, maketheshift.org, pushthefilm.com, or breakingsocialfilm.com.